Lesson 11 for September 3 through to 9, Out of the Whirlwind. Sabbath afternoon, December 3. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word again this week, we thank you for all of your blessings to us. We thank you for the blessings of this series of lessons about the book of Job and about your interaction with him and, in consequence, with us as well. And we thank you that as we open your word, your spirit can guide us that we may more fully understand your grace, your love, and your compassion for each of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Job chapter 38 and verse 4. For where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Let's read that again. Job 38 verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Whatever their differences, the characters in the book of Job had one thing in common. Each had a lot to say about God, or at least about his understanding of God. And as we've seen, much of what they said we could agree on. After all, Who would argue with this, as in Job 12, verses 7 to 10? But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind? Or with this from Job chapter 8 and verse 3, Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? And while the context was Job's suffering, the main focus of discussion was God. With the exception of the first two chapters, though, the Lord remained hidden in the background as the book progressed. All that, however, was about to change. God himself the subject of so much discussion and debate in the book of Job, will now speak for himself. Sunday, December 4. Out of the Whirlwind Question. Read Job chapter 38, verse 1. What happens here that is different from everything else in all the other dialogues? Job 38, verse 1 reads, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said... Well, suddenly and unexpectedly the Lord now appears in the book of Job the first time since chapter 2 and verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Nothing really prepares the reader for this sudden appearance of God. Job 37 ends with Elihu's speech, and the next thing we know, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind in verse 1 of chapter 38. Instead, It is just God and Job, as if the other men are irrelevant, at least for now. The word whirlwind comes from a Hebrew word that means storm or tempest, and it has been used in connection with the appearance of God to humans in Isaiah chapter 29 and Zechariah chapter 9. 
It was also the word used in the context of Elijah's being taken to heaven. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, it said in Second Kings 2 and verse 1. Though we're not given any physical details about this theophany, a visible manifestation of God to humanity, it is clear that God isn't speaking to Job in a still, small voice, as we read in 1 Kings 19.12. Instead, the Lord manifested himself in a very powerful way, one that certainly got Job's attention. Of course, this wasn't the only time God had revealed himself to fallen humans. Again and again, the scriptures show us the closeness of God to humanity. Question. What do the following texts teach us about how near God can be to us? First of all, there's Genesis chapter 15 and verses 1 through to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Genesis 32, verses 24 to 32. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And then he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And John, chapter 1, and verse 29. And that reads, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Bible teaches us the great and important truth that our God is not a distant God who created our world and then left us to ourselves. Instead, He is a God who closely interacts with us. No matter our sorrows, our troubles, or whatever we face in this life, we can have the assurance that God is near and that we can trust Him. So, to finish today, 
It's one thing to believe intellectually in the nearness of God to us. It's quite another to experience that nearness. How can you learn to draw close to God and to derive hope and comfort from this relationship? Monday, December 5. God's Question After what must have seemed to Job like a very long silence, God finally speaks to him, even if what he first said might not have been what Job wanted to hear. Question. What was the first question that God asked Job, and what was implied in that question? Job 38 and verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. All through the Bible, we find God asking humans questions. This is not because he doesn't know the answers already. Instead, as a good teacher often does, God asks questions because they are an effective way to get us to think about our situation, to make us confront ourselves, to help us work through issues and come to the proper conclusions. The questions, then, that God asks are not to teach the Lord something that he didn't already understand. Rather, they are often asked in order to help people learn things that perhaps they needed to better understand. God's questions are a rhetorical device to help reach people with truth. Question. Read the following questions from God. What do you think God's purpose was in asking each of these questions? What point was he making? First of all, we'll go to the book of Genesis and chapter 3 and verse 11. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you to eat? And the next one is Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9. And Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9 reads just like this. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then there's First Kings chapter 19 and verse 9. So First Kings chapter 19 and verse 9 reads, There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And then in Acts chapter 9 and verse 4, and that reads, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And finally, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. And Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13 reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Job had a lot to say about God. And the Lord obviously wanted him to see that, in fact, there was a lot he didn't know or understand about his Creator. 
In many ways, God's opening question to Job parallels some of the words that these men had said to him as well. In chapter 8 and verse 1 to 3, Then Bildad the Shuanite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? And then Job chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? And chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge, and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk, or in words which he can do no good? With which he can do no good? So, to finish today, if God were to ask you a question about the state of your life right now, what do you think he would ask? And what would you answer? What do you think the question and the answer teach you about yourself? Tuesday, December 6, The Lord as Creator. Question. Read Job chapter 38, verses 4 through to 41. What questions does God ask Job, and what is the purpose of those questions? Beginning at verse 4 in Job chapter 38. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed? Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth? and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay unto the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth, Declare, if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? 
who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father, or who has got begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of water may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings, that they may go and say to you, Here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts, or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom, or who can tilt the water-skins of the heavens, when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions, when they crouch in their dens, or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey, when its young ones cry to God for help, and wander about for lack of food? If Job expected some detailed explanation about why all these calamities happened to him, he didn't get it. Instead, what he got was a flow of rhetorical questions contrasting the Lord in his creative might to the transience and ignorance of poor Job. Job 38.4 read, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? The Lord began with that. After echoing some of the earliest images in Genesis, for example, the origins of the earth, the sea, light and darkness, God says to Job basically that, of course you know all these things, because you were born then, or because the number of your days is great, as in Job 38.21. The Lord then points to wonders and mysteries of creation, again with a series of rhetorical questions that cover not just the foundations of the earth, but also the mysteries of the weather and even of the stars themselves. Verse 31, Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades, or loose the belt of Orion? He then points Job back to the earth, to everything from human insight in verse 36 to the lives of the wild animals in verses 39 to 41, a theme that is fleshed out in much more detail all through the next chapter, Job 39, as well. Had the book been written today, the Lord might have said, Who binds the quarks in protons and neutrons? Where were you when I first measured out a Planck mass? Is it your wisdom that gravity bends space and time? The answer to all these questions is the same. Of course not. Job wasn't there for any of these events, and he had little knowledge about any of the phenomena the Lord referred to. God's point was to show Job that even with all his wisdom and knowledge, and even though he spoke right, as it said in chapter 42, verse 7, about God in contrast to these other men, Job still knew so little. And his lack of knowledge was best revealed by how great Job's ignorance of the created world was. If Job knew so little about the creation... How much could he understand about the Creator? 
What a powerful contrast between the Creator and the created, between God and humanity. Though God contrasted himself to Job, any other human being, with the exception of Jesus, would have sufficed as well. What are we in contrast to God? And yet, look at what this God has done to save us and to offer us the hope of eternal fellowship with Him. Wednesday, December 7, The Wisdom of the Wise From our perspective today, it's easy to look at the questions that God had asked Job and realize how little a man like Job, living thousands of years ago, could understand about the created world. It wasn't until AD 1500s, for instance, that humans, at least some of them, finally understood that the motion of the sun in the sky was the result of the rotation of the earth on its axis and the reverse of the commonly held belief that the sun orbits around the earth, a truth that most of us take for granted now. Thanks mostly to modern science, we live today with knowledge of the natural world that people in ancient Bible times couldn't begin to comprehend, and yet, even with all this acquired knowledge, we humans are still limited in our understanding of the natural world and its origins. Question. Read over the questions God asked Job in chapters 38 and 39. How much better could people answer them today. Well, we read chapter 38 yesterday, so let's go to chapter 39 and look at the questions that God asks of Job. Job 39 and verse 1, Do you know when the mountain goats gave birth? Do you observe the carving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong, they grow up in the open, they go out and do not return to them. Who has led the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey, to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city, he hears not the shouts of the driver, he ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night in your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them or that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? 
Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He pours in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of a trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high, on the rock he dwells and makes his home, and on the rocky crag and stronghold? From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. There is no question that science has revealed to us facets of reality that were previously hidden. However, so much still remains for us to learn. In many ways, far from removing the majesty and mystery of God's creation, science has made it even more fascinating, revealing a depth and complexity of the natural world that previous generations knew nothing about. As Ellen White wrote in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 113, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Just how God accomplished the work of creation, he has never revealed to men. Human science cannot search out the secrets of the Most High. His creative power is as incomprehensible as his existence. Question. What warning, however, should we take from the following texts in regard to the great limits of human knowledge? First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 19, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 27. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
And so, to finish today, even with all the knowledge humans have accumulated in the past few hundred years, the creation remains full of wonders and mysteries that we can barely fathom. The more we learn about the created world, the more amazing and mysterious it appears to us. In what ways does the created world cause you to marvel before the power of our God? Thursday, December 8. Repenting in Dust and Ashes Question. Read Job chapter 40, verses 1 to 4, and Job chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. What was Job's response to God's revelation of himself? Job 40, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Obviously Job was overwhelmed by what God had shown him. In fact, in chapter 42, verse 3, he says, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge in the New King James Version? He was simply repeating God's first question to him. Job knew the answer now. It was Job himself who spoke about what he really didn't know. Notice, too, what Job said in chapter 42, verse 5. Though he had not heard about God, now that he saw God, that is, now that he got a better view of God, he saw himself for what he really was. That's why he reacted as he did, abhorring himself and repenting in dust and ashes. Question. Read Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 5, and Luke 5, verses 1 to 8. How do the reactions described there parallel that of Job? Well, first of all, Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 1 to 5. Isaiah chapter 6 and beginning at verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. 
your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And Luke chapter 8 verses 1 through to 8. And that begins like this. Luke chapter 8 verses 1 through to 8. Soon afterward he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when the great crowd was gathered, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What we see in all these cases are manifestations of a key Bible truth, and that is the sinfulness of humanity. Job was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. We read in Job 1.1. And despite Satan's best attempts to turn him against God, Job stayed faithful through it all. We are dealing here with a solid, faithful believer in the Lord. And yet, what? As with Isaiah and Peter... A glimpse of the holiness and power of God was enough to make Job cringe with a sense of his own sinfulness and smallness. That's because we are all fallen, sin-damaged beings whose very nature itself brings us into conflict with God. That's why, in the end, no one can save himself. No one can do enough good works to merit any favour before God. That's why we all, even the best among us, those who, like Job, are upright and blameless and who fear God and shun evil, need grace, need a saviour, need someone to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. Fortunately, we have all that and more in Jesus. So, to finish today, imagine yourself right now standing face to face before God. What do you think your reaction would be? Friday, December 9. From the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 113, I read, God has permitted a flood of light to be poured upon the world in both science and art. But when professedly scientific men treat upon these subjects from a merely human point of view, they will assuredly come to wrong conclusions. It may be innocent to speculate beyond what God's Word has revealed, if our theories do not contradict facts found in the Scriptures. But those who leave the Word of God and seek to account for His created works upon scientific principles are drifting without chart or compass upon an unknown ocean. The greatest minds, if not guided by the Word of God in their research, become bewildered in their attempts to trace the relations of science and revelation. 
because the Creator and His works are so far beyond their comprehension that they are unable to explain them by natural laws, they regard Bible history as unreliable. Those who doubt the reliability of the records of the Old and New Testaments will be led to go a step further and doubt the existence of God. And then, having lost their anchor, they are left to beat about upon the rocks of infidelity. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, look at the Ellen White statement in today's lesson. What evidence do we see that what she warned about is actually happening, especially in the area of science? What are some things that science, at least as now practiced, teaches that are in blatant contradiction to God's word? Two, Alfred North Whitehead, an influential mathematician and author who lived in the previous century, said the following, Fifty-seven years ago, it was when I was a young man in the University of Cambridge. I was taught science and mathematics by brilliant men and did well in them. Since the turn of the century, I have lived to see every one of the basic assumptions of both set aside. And yet, in the face of that, the discoverers of the new hypotheses in science are declaring, now at least we have certainty. That's A.N. Whitehead, Dialogues of Alfred North Whitehead. What should this tell us about how carefully we need to be in accepting what the world's great men teach us, especially when what they teach blatantly contradicts God's word? And three, what are some of the marvels of creation that modern science has revealed to us that people in the time of Job, or even just 200 years ago, couldn't possibly have understood? How do these things reveal to us even more the amazing creative power of our Lord? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Doing God's Business Part 2 and it comes from the testimony of a Seventh-day Adventist businessman in Portugal. Doing God's Business I met with church leaders in the project's region and we laid plans to train and equip 1,000 laypersons to share the gospel in their homeland. Although evangelism in this country is technically illegal, God opened doors. When we arrived, we thought that some of the 1,000 people who had signed up wouldn't come. But 1,300 people came. Some knew that they wouldn't receive the materials, but they wanted to come and learn anyway. What an amazing bunch of laypersons we have there. We couldn't import evangelistic materials or DVD players for the lay evangelists, so we had to buy or produce these items within the country. Each person is allowed to buy only one DVD player, and we had to be sure that they didn't all go to buy the DVD players at the same time or in the same place. We bought paper and printing materials on the black market to print the scripts that go with the DVDs we gave to the volunteers. All of this had to be done secretly. And we can't talk about how God made it happen, but he did. We trained and equipped the lay people and sent them back home to start working. One hundred of these lay members are now working full-time, like global mission pioneers, to teach and baptize and establish new church plants. 
they have been secretly moved to areas within the country where we have no churches. There they teach their new neighbours about God's love and plant new churches. In the first six months of the program, the believers in this country have studied with thousands of eager people. More than 650 people have been baptised and six new churches have been planted. And these dear people are just getting started. I'm amazed at what God is doing through my family and me and others who are dedicated to serving God however He leads. We are God's hands, stewards of His resources. He's asking us to further His work in a place I never could have dreamed possible. Every believer is a steward of God's resources, and He will bless each of us as we turn our lives and resources over to Him. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful. <laughs>